0: This is a legacy that belongs not just to African Americans. This is not just African American history. This is American history. This is important American history that's the legacy of every American. It belongs to all of us.
1: Welcome to the Dear Bob and Sue Podcast, stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Matt
0: Smith. And I'm Karen Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. Today, we're stepping back in time to the early days of Yosemite, Sequoia, and Kings Canyon National Parks.
1: We'll be sharing some of the forgotten stories about the Buffalo Soldiers, African-American troops who not only helped build and protect our national parks, but who also served as the very first park rangers.
0: And we'll talk about their remarkable legacy that lives on in these California parks and how millions of park visitors over the last 120 years have benefited from their dedication and hard work.
1: But first, a look at National Park Visitation in 2023. Okay, before we get started, we thought we would first talk about park visitation.
0: Last week, the National Park Service released their figures for park visitation in 2023, and it's been fun to look through all that data.
1: Yeah, I thought it was uh, interesting to find out that over 325 million people visited NPS sites last year. Now, they collected data from 400 of the park system units, and it showed that there was an increase of 4% in visitation from the previous year, 2022.
0: So not surprising that the visitation is up. One statistic that we're always interested in would be the most visited national park, national park sites. And not surprisingly, the most visited national park, again, was Great Smoky Mountains.
1: I think that list is pretty consistent year after year, isn't it? I mean, Great Smoky Mountains, as far as National Park National Parks, is always at the top of the list. I mean, part of it is there's a highway that runs through it, so those folks driving through are all counted as visitors.
0: Yeah, I thought that maybe in 2023, since the park started requiring parking passes to park at the trailheads and overlooks, that they might have an adjusted count of people who were actually recreating in the park rather than just driving through.
1: Since the park is free and there aren't any entrance stations, the way they estimate visitation is by counting cars the various entrances are outfitted with an inductive loop traffic counter that keeps track of how many vehicles drive over it. Then the park multiplies the vehicle tally by a person's per vehicle estimate, so 2.5 people per car for the months of October through May, and then 2.8 people per car for June through September.
0: I love that, (laughs) 2.8.
1: Yeah, (laughs) 2.8. They're bringing the uh, extra 0.3 people with them in the summer.
0: (laughs) That's right. Now, Great Smoky Mountains visitation was listed for 2023 at, get this, 13.29 million and that's versus the number two park, which was Grand Canyon, who had 4.73 million visitors. So a huge difference.
1: The number three was Zion, followed by Yellowstone, Rocky Mountain, Yosemite, Acadia, Grand Teton, Joshua Tree, Olympic. Those were the top 10 of the national parks.
0: Right. And interestingly, the last two, Joshua Tree and Olympic, those are new to the top 10 list this year. They knocked off from 2022, they knocked off Cuyahoga Valley and Glacier. And, you know, I was surprised to see Glacier fall off of the top 10 list because it seems like everyone is going to Glacier National Park.
1: Well, that's true. In 2023, they implemented four different day-use reservation requirements, which they had to because the park was just getting so crowded in the summertime. And also, the window to visit glaciers pretty short because you got the snow from the previous year that they got to clear off the roads, and then it starts snowing again, like mid-September. So you got a crush of people trying to get there in a few months, and then they have the reservation system. So I could see how glaciers' visitation would be down.
0: And the same kind of thing goes for the least visited national parks. And the the 10 least visited are Gates of the Arctic, American Samoa, Lake Clark, Cobuck Valley, Isle Royal, Katmai, North Cascades, Wrangell St. Elias, Dry Tortugas, and Great Basin. And kind of the same thing, Matt, that you said with, you know, everyone is visiting in the summer. You could say that about almost all of these, except <laughs> Dry Tortugas, Great Basin, and American Samoa.
1: Yeah, part of that is influenced just by the difficulty of getting to, to some of these places. Now, We should mention that North Cascades National Park, I think there's a little bit of an anomaly there. It's kind of the opposite of what's happening with Great Smoky Mountains. The highway that goes through the area, when you look at the map, it actually is going through Ross Lake National Recreation Area and the Okanagan Wenatchee National Forest. And it's a little more difficult to get into North Cascades National Park. So there's a lot of visitors to this National Park Service complex of those three parks. But the the hikers or the backpackers going into North Cascades is a small percentage of the people who visit that complex.
0: Right. And it is misleading because people who see this on the, the list of least visited, you know, might go up there thinking they're going to find some solitude. And it's actually very crowded in the summer. I looked up the visitation for all three of these units that are co-managed together as North Cascades National Park. It totals over a million visitors and of course most of these are visiting in the summer. So we put a little asterisk by North Cascades National Park.
1: And we should also talk about all of the NPS sites. So if you include all of them, not just the ones with National Park in their name, you've got Blue Ridge Parkway, which is number one. And I think they're kind of always number one, aren't Mm -hmm. they? Because the The site itself is a road, right? That's what you do there. You drive the parkway, you get out It overlooks. And so it, it makes sense that there's going to be a lot of people driving that parkway.
0: Right. And then following Blue Ridge Parkway is Golden Gate National Recreation Area, Great Smoky Mountains, Gateway National Recreation Area, Gulf Islands National Seashore, Lincoln Memorial, George Washington Memorial Parkway, Natchez Trace Parkway, Lake Mead, and Glen Canyon National Recreation Areas.
1: Yeah, all very popular.
0: Right. And the National Park Service came out and said that based on this particular list, they feel like people are are starting to discover more of the NPS sites than just the ones that have National Park in the name, which is a great thing if people are spreading out their visits over all the 429 NPS sites.
1: Okay. Let's also talk about some of the NPS sites who broke visitation records. The Carl Sandburg Home, the National Historic Site in North Carolina. I guess uh, Carl Sandburg's becoming more popular because more more people are visiting his home.
0: I know. Then there's uh, Congaree National Park, Dry Tortugas National Park, Glacier Bay National Park, Glen Canyon National Recreation Area, and Hagerman Fossil Beds National Monument
1: the Hagerman fossil beds
0: <laughs> we've been there we
1: have been there uh, yeah we visited Hagerman when we went on our ruts and fossils road trip not not nearly as popular as our great american bison road trip <laughs> But the Ruts and Fossils <laughs> road trip was, was pretty cool.
0: We haven't done an episode on that yet, but we should. <laughs> we,
1: we should. Hagerman is in Idaho. Kind of out of the way, but it's an it's a interesting little town and uh, an interesting small NPS site.
0: Right. And this does not get many visitors. So it's interesting that they broke their visitation record. In 2021, they had 8,000 visitors. In 2022, they had 25,000. And in 2023, they had 33,400. And it might be partly because they had a new visitor center that opened up in the spring of 2022.
1: Yeah, that could be. When we visited, they were still in the older visitor center that was in town, kind of amongst the commercial area. in in downtown Hagerman. Nothing wrong with that visitor center, but now they have a brand new one with a lot more room to display the fossils.
0: Right, and that's where you're going to want to go because it's the only place where you can actually view fossils at this monument. I guess due to their hazardous location, the fossil beds themselves are not um, are not accessible to the general public. So you can only go to the visitor center, but there are also a couple other things you can do.
1: Right. The whole reason we visited that site in the first place is we wanted to see the Oregon Trail ruts that are part of that site. And You can go and find visible wagon ruts along the park road. And and it's very obvious where these ruts are. And I I think that's pretty cool. I mean, this is over 150 years ago, people were traveling through that area. You can still see evidence of where they passed through. I think that's interesting to see.
0: Yes. Along the Park Road, you can see them. There is an overlook called the Oregon Trail Overlook. You can see them. Also, if you want to do a little hiking, they do have a trail called the Emigrant Trail. That's a maintained hiking trail that roughly parallels the old wagon route. So very cool to see them. Uh, we actually added this on. We were coming, well, we were coming from Seattle. We stopped in Oregon, in Baker City. They have a great Oregon Trail Interpretive Center there. And then we made our way down to Hagerman and saw the the ruts there.
1: But you know, Karen, the ruts are not the only reason to go to this NPS site. The Hagerman Fossil Beds National Monument is best known for its discovery of the Hagerman horse. They found over 200 individual fossils of Hagerman horses on that site, and it's the single largest find of that species. Now, Karen, I don't know if you knew this, but the Hagerman horse first appeared around 3.7 million years ago in North America.
0: You know, I was a little rusty on that fact, Matt. Were you? (laughs) Thank you for the clarification. So if you want to visit the um, Hagerman Fossil Beds Visitor Center and check out the ruts, this national monument is located about 90 minutes southeast of Boise, Idaho. It's actually pretty near Twin Falls. Yeah, so a great stop if you happen to be in the area.
1: That's right. We enjoyed it.
0: All right. So moving on to today's topic, the Buffalo Soldiers and the work they did in some of our earliest national parks. You know, we have talked a lot in the past about the role that the CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps, played in developing our national parks.
1: Yes, we have. We've <laughs> we've talked about those that, that group of men quite a bit.
0: <laughs> I try to work it in whenever I can. However, there was another group of men who, decades before the CCC, protected and helped build our earliest parks. And these are the African-American regiments known as the Buffalo Soldiers.
1: And since February is Black History Month, we thought this is a perfect time to showcase some of their work. And we're going to talk about... The work they did in Yosemite, Kings Canyon, and Sequoia.
0: That's right. And you know, one of the most passionate speakers about the Buffalo Soldiers is Yosemite Ranger Shelton Johnson. And he started his career as a ranger in Yellowstone in 1987.
1: Yeah. Now, he's um, a big star now, right? <laughs> he's he, a he's, celebrity. He's a celebrity because... <laughs> He was part of the Ken Burns documentary on the National Parks, America's uh, Best Idea. And he did such a fantastic job. He was so compelling with his talks about the National Parks, very emotional. Uh, He he did such a great job. He's now a celebrity. We would love to interview him sometime. (laughs) I'm sure he's a fan of this podcast. So Shelton, if you're listening, we would love to interview you sometime. But we couldn't get him for this episode.
0: (laughs) We did reach out to – we tried to reach out, but um, our inquiry was unanswered. So not sure if if we sent it to the correct place. But anyway, I just wanted to mention something that he said. You know, he talks a lot about – the forgotten stories of the Buffalo soldiers. This is something that he's really passionate about. And I was watching a presentation that he did during Black History Month a couple years ago, where he said, and I'll quote this, This is a legacy that belongs not just to African-Americans. This is not just African-American history. This is American history. This is important American history. That's the legacy of every American. It belongs to all of us, end quote.
1: Yeah, that's a fantastic quote of his. And he's done a lot to bring attention to the stories of the Buffalo Soldiers. So Karen, who were the Buffalo soldiers? I don't know, maybe you could give us a little history. Could you go back and and just start from the beginning and yeah, tell well- people who these... These folks were?
0: I can, Matt. And you know what? This is kind of just one big, giant history channel. So I know you're going to be really happy about that. I mean, the whole episode from here on. <laughs> so we can skip the music. We can skip we just, the music. Just, there is a lot it's to talk history, about. all history all the time. All right. <laughs> all right. So it wasn't until after the Civil War that African-Americans could enlist in the regular army. And in 1866, Congress created six segregated regiments that were soon consolidated into four black regiments. They were the 9th and 10th Cavalry and the 24th and 25th Infantry. So these regiments fought in the Indian Wars and were eventually given the name Buffalo Soldiers by the Cheyenne and other Plains Indians. This term was eventually used for all black soldiers, even if they hadn't fought in the Indian Wars.
1: It's interesting that the Indians use that term buffalo soldiers because for them, the buffalo was revered. It was literally their entire life. It provided all of the resources for them to survive and live on the plains. And so using that term, buffalo soldier, was, it was a term of respect.
0: Well, absolutely. And the Buffalo Soldiers took that as a term of respect, and that's why even today they are still known as Buffalo Soldiers. All right.
1: So in this episode, we're going to talk about specifically the troops of the 24th Infantry and the 9th Cavalry who protected Yosemite, Kings Canyon, and Sequoia in 1899, 1903, and 1904.
0: Right. So, let's go back to the early days of these first national parks. Now, we have mentioned this in other episodes, but the National Park Service itself wasn't created until 1916. So, who was going to manage and protect these early parks?
1: Yeah, like like you said, we started creating national parks, protecting these areas, setting them aside long before the NPS was created. Way back in 1872, they created Yellowstone, so the government had to turn to the military to protect these areas from poachers, from people doing bad stuff in the park. Yeah, so it was the military in those early days that were protecting the parks.
0: That's right. The U.S. Army acted as the official administrator of both Yosemite and Sequoia, In 1899, approximately 500 Buffalo Soldiers departed from the Presidio in San Francisco. They rode through the Central Valley and up into the Sierra Nevada Mountains, and their destination was Yosemite, which was at the time a prized assignment, considered within the ranks to be, quote, cavalry men's paradise, end quote. Now, just think, I, I don't have a statistic on this, Matt, but just think how long it would have taken them back in 1899 to get on horseback from San Francisco to the wilderness that was Yosemite.
1: Yeah, it would take a long time and and I can imagine if you're one of those soldiers and you get the word that this is this is your new assignment. I, I mean, that's that would be pretty cool. Now, granted, you're living rough, but I would imagine soldier's life back then was pretty rough anyway. Right To to go off into these incredible wilderness areas, yeah, that's got to be a a good assignment.
0: You would think so, wouldn't you? Now, once they were there, the job of the Buffalo Soldiers was to protect Yosemite from a variety of threats. There was the poaching of wildlife, illegal logging, and destructive livestock grazing, just to name a few. They also um, built a lot of the infrastructure, which included roads and trails that are still in use today.
1: You know, it's easy to read that description now and say, okay, yeah, they d- did all those things. But like back then, they didn't have bulldozers. They didn't have this like large uh, earth moving equipment. Like building a road was very different in 1899 than it is today.
0: Yes, it's complete wilderness there. You know, we see these parks as they are today with all of the infrastructure there. But just imagine what it would have been like there when there is absolutely nothing but wilderness.
1: And you know what this means, Karen? What does it mean, Matt? It means that the Buffalo Soldiers were actually the very first National Park Rangers and backcountry Rangers. Right. <laughs> back then, I guess almost all park rangers were also backcountry rangers. It's, it's all backcountry back
0: right. then. Right. They didn't have law enforcement rangers and interpretive no. rangers. It was just, you were a ranger. You're a ranger. You did it all. Okay. All right, Matt. So it's time for a little pop quiz before we get into some more details here.
1: Uh, I didn't prepare a, a <laughs> quiz for you, but I, I mean, I can think of one.
0: I have a good one for you. I thought this was really interesting. Okay. Okay. So in these early years of our first national parks, and again, we're talking about Yellowstone, Yosemite, and Sequoia, the military rangers invented the entrance stations to the parks. They actually started the entrance stations, you know, this is kind of the same thing we go through now. But back then, what was the main goal of these entrance stations?
1: The main goal of the entrance stations, I would guess that it is, it was just a demarcation. It was, it was a notice to people like, especially people who wanted to graze their sheep, like you are entering the park. This is the beginning of the park. Past this entrance station, you, you got to stop all that bad behavior.
0: Okay, that's a a really intelligent and thoughtful answer. (laughs) But it's actually slightly more specific than that. I mean, that was correct. But the main reason that they felt the need to do this was to confiscate firearms. Firearms? Yes. They had established the rule that you could not hunt in the national park, and people were still trying to bring their guns in and hunt. So this was the rule posted in Yellowstone in June of 1897 and it says quote firearms will only be permitted in the park on written permission from the superintendent on arrival at the first station of the park guard parties having firearms will turn them over to the sergeant in charge of the station taking his receipt for them they will be returned to the owners upon leaving the park end quote
1: yeah okay so imagine that happening it Back then, if you're going to the park and you have guns, you have guns because you want to use them like generally, right? You're, you're hunting. Are you really turning in your guns and then still going into the park? You're you're really probably just turning around.
0: Maybe so. Sure. I think that's that's probably what happened a lot of times is because people don't want to go in without their guns. But I just thought that was so interesting. So at this point in the entrance station, they are called guards, not rangers. They are guarding the park. I see. Now, specifically in Yosemite, in addition to manning the guard stations, keeping the loggers away, and building roads, we wanted to mention a project that the Buffalo Soldiers completed, and that was building an arboretum. And this was in 1904, over near the Wawona area.
1: Was the Wawona Hotel there at that time?
0: Yes, and the main trail actually ran from the Wawona Hotel along the south bank of the South Fork of the Merced River to the confluence of Big Creek, where it crossed a small footbridge into the Arboretum. It's now called the first museum in a national park. This was a 70-acre project. Um, The Arboretum had a nature trail running through it with benches and plants and trail signs. And it also included signs giving the names of not just the plants, but also their species name in Latin. This was the very first marked nature trail in the entire NPS system.
1: The very first nature trail? In 1904?
0: Well, in a national park, yes. Now, unfortunately, after the Buffalo Soldiers left, um, the Arboretum was forgotten. And over the last 120 years, all of the work they did has been either grown over or washed away. And it's now called Wawona's Lost Garden.
1: And you want to go see that, don't you?
0: I do. And there is a map online, so it wouldn't be that hard to find. I saw a map in relationship to the Wawona Hotel. It would be fun to go see. I don't think there are any traces left. I know in 1950, a park ranger surveying the area found eight remaining signs along with the trail, and at least one sign was taken to the Yosemite Museum for preservation. But I don't think there is much left to to signify that this was the arboretum that the Buffalo Soldiers built.
1: Now, an arboretum is like, it's an outdoor museum of trees, right? And so wouldn't a lot of those trees, you know, a lot of times arboretums, they're they're putting trees there that, uh, you know, it's a collection of trees, right? They would still be there, right?
0: Yes, it would be fun to go and try to find it, you know, get the map and try to find where this arboretum was.
1: Okay, so that's Yosemite. Let's move south to Sequoia and Kings Canyon, which is about a two to three hour drive south of Yosemite.
0: Right. Now, we wanted to talk briefly about the establishment of these parks before we get into the Buffalo Soldiers role, because this is kind of a unique situation. When Kings Canyon National Park was originally created, it was named after Ulysses S. Grant.
1: It was what it was, a Grant National Park?
0: General Grant oh, National Park. It was
1: General Grant National Park, yeah.
0: Right. In October 1890, just one week after the establishment of Sequoia National Park, they made this General Grant National Park. It was created for the purpose of preserving the second largest Sequoia tree, which had also been named for General Grant, the um, the General Grant tree.
1: So they set up Sequoia and then they realized very quickly, oh, there's There's more trees that we forgot to put in the park. So they created the second national park. And then over time, they added land to it.
0: Well, exactly. So the original General Grant National Park was only four square miles of land. And it was located six miles northwest of Sequoia National Park. And so after it was established, um, this park was managed alongside Sequoia National Park by both the military and civilian superintendents. So they started managing it together like they still do today.
1: And in the 1920s? They began building the road that connects those two sites, making General Grant more accessible to visitors. And at the same time, Congress and the Department of Interior also began considering the idea of a larger park that would consume both General Grant and Sequoia National Park. And they wanted to call it the Roosevelt National Park, but... But by the mid-1920s, the plan for the Roosevelt National Park failed, and they just didn't have the votes in Congress to do that.
0: So this General's Highway that connected both parks was finally dedicated in 1935, and in 1940, the federal government acquired approximately 720 square acres, and with this acquisition, the land that was General Grant National Park was consumed by the newly created Kings Canyon National Park. and And this little area that surrounded the General Grant tree became Grant Grove.
1: I love that area. We were just there again last May. From the parking lot, there's a paved loop trail that's about a half a mile or so. And that will take you to the General Grant tree and some other really big sequoias.
0: Yeah, I'll never forget the first time we visited um, years and years ago. We went to Kings Canyon first, before Sequoia, and our first stop was the General Grant Grove. And I remember looking up at the General Grant tree and just, I don't know, just being transfixed by the sight of this massive, massive tree.
1: Yeah, they're super impressive trees. If you've never seen a Sequoia before, They they're different than other trees. The the trunk stays pretty much the same diameter for for quite a ways up. And then it looks like they have these little tiny branches at the top, almost like T-Rex dinosaur arms. But when you're standing there and realizing looking up at those little branches, those little branches are bigger than most regular trees.
0: And, you know, I think the word that always comes to mind when I think of these trees is girth.
1: Isn't (laughs) that like the
0: most perfect word? Yeah,
1: yeah. they should have called them girth trees (laughs) instead of sequoias.
0: (laughs) They're just so massively big around from the base as they go up. And and there's not a lot of taper to these trees. Right.
1: That was the word I was looking for, taper. Not a lot (laughs) of taper. They go straight up.
0: Yeah, anyway, these trees are something that everybody needs to see in their lifetime. All right. Now, you can't talk about the role of the Buffalo Soldiers in Sequoia and General Grant without mentioning Charles Young, who was the superintendent of Sequoia National Park. So when Captain Charles Young arrived in Sequoia and General Grant National Parks, he had already faced a lot of challenges. He was born into slavery in Kentucky during the Civil War, And then he was the first African-American to graduate from the all-white high school in Ohio. He won an appointment to the U.S. Military Academy at West Point in 1884, where he went on to graduate with his commission, only the third black man to do so.
1: And then in 1903, he was serving as a captain of an all-black regiment in San Francisco's Presidio. And that's when he was asked to take the troops to Sequoia and General Grant National Parks.
0: Right, and he became acting superintendent for the summer, the first African-American acting superintendent of a national park. And so he took his 96 enlisted men, known as the Buffalo Soldiers, from San Francisco to their new assignment in these parks.
1: Now, at that time that they asked him to take this uh, group of men uh, out to the parks, Sequoia and General Grant, they were only 13 years old. They were also still very much... Undeveloped, They were difficult to access. And so one of the first things that Young and his regiment of men did is they started improving the old wagon road that went up to the giant forest from what is now Three Rivers, California, the southern entrance.
0: Right. This section of road built by the Buffalo Soldiers extends from Crystal Cave along what is today the Crystal Cave Road to the General's Highway and then north on the General's Highway to Round Meadow and to Morrow Rock on the Morrow Rock Crescent Meadow Road. And so just imagine what we drive now to get up to the giant forest. Young and his men built that road.
1: That's a difficult road to just drive these days it's winding and steep in spots and it, it goes on and on and on. So that, that's a pretty impressive uh, construction project for any time, let alone back in 1903.
0: Well, I know. And I guess the progress on building the road before 1903 was slow, as you can imagine. And after three summers of crews working on it, they had only gotten about five miles of the road constructed. But when Young came in with his crew, he poured considerable energy into finishing this project. And so by mid-August of 19. Oh, three wagons traveled to the Sequoia Groves for the very first time.
1: Yeah, and he was very proud of the fact that he built the whole road and, and there was no part of the road that had a grade steeper than 8%. Right.
0: And when he built it, uh, one of the things he said that is that this road should ensure that a thousand tourists would be able to travel it where before there had been only a hundred. And I guess what what he probably couldn't have imagined is that Sequoia in 2023 had just under a million visitors and Kings Canyon 643. So not a thousand tourists, but, uh, but a million every year.
1: Yeah, that's great progress. I guess being able to get that many people up to see these natural wonders,
0: and so they did more than just road construction. They built over 18 miles of trails, um, including a trail from the Giant Forest to Mineral King. And Young also convinced a majority of private landowners to sign contracts agreeing to sell tracts of land surrounded by the parks, particularly those in the Giant Forest. So you have to remember, as they're defining the boundaries of these parks, some of this land is privately held. So they're you know they're getting people to sell their land to be included in this national park boundary. So
1: Kieran, Sequoia National Park, it's famous for the General Sherman tree, and it's the largest tree on earth by volume. And uh, Captain Young and, and his Buffalo soldiers, they built the first fences around that tree, the General Sherman tree, and also the General Grant tree, which is the second largest tree by volume. Uh, They built protection around that tree also in the General Grant National Park.
0: I know. Can you just imagine what what that must have been like for them? Like you said earlier, just touching on working in these parks and seeing these incredible giant trees and knowing that you are the one who is tasked with protecting them from loggers and from fire.
1: Right. Today, those fences are keeping people, tourists, back from them. I, I think back... Then when they originally built those fences, it was more to let people know, like, you're not going to cut this one down. You know, those big trees were highly coveted by the loggers. No doubt if left unprotected they would have come in and cut those trees down.
0: Oh, no doubt. You know, just look at what happened in Converse Basin. Five miles north of the General Grant Grove, on what was then private land, loggers decimated the sequoia trees from around the late 1800s to about 1908.
1: Now the area is protected as part of Giant Sequoia National Monument, and you can drive back to the Converse Basin from Kings Canyon and see some of the remaining stumps, including the remains of the General Noble Tree. So this giant sequoia was cut down in 1892. It took four men 13 days. And then part of it was shipped off and displayed at the Chicago World's Fair. What's left of it is called the Chicago Stump, and it's about 20 feet tall.
0: Right. And in this Converse Basin, where the General Noble Tree lived, I was shocked to read that fewer than one hundred out of six thousand mature sequoias were spared from logging
1: yeah that's that's pretty amazing i I would like to understand where that wood went. I mean, seriously, are there homes built out of it? is there furniture is are there any remains of those logs, hopefully preserved in some houses?
0: I know right? who knows.
1: Unfortunately, they didn't step in in time to protect these groves like they did inside the National Park Boundaries.
0: Right, like they did in Sequoia's Giant Forest. Now, if you're planning to either drive in the footsteps of what they built, you know, this road to the giant forest, or if you want to walk in their footsteps and see the General Sherman tree, one thing you can do is, I mean, it's a short walk from the parking area just to see the General Sherman tree, but you could also go on and do the Congress Trail, which is a two-mile loop that starts near the General Sherman tree, and it takes you through some of the largest sequoias in the grove.
1: You can also see more by continuing on the Giant Forest Loop Trail, which is about seven and a half miles.
0: Right. And like a lot of hiking trails, the further you go, the more you get away from the crowd. So there will undoubtedly be a lot of people looking at the General Sherman tree. But once you get a few miles away on the trail, you might just have it to yourself.
1: That's right. Now, Charles Young and his crew, they're also credited for building the trail up to the top of Mount Whitney. So, building the road up to the big trees that wasn't enough. They had done that. Like what else you got for us? So, okay, so see that mountain there, the the, the tallest mountain that you can see. Let's build a trail up to the top of that.
0: Well, right. And the thing is too, this is all in the same summer. So, that's what's pretty amazing too. Yeah. Mount Whitney is the highest mountain in the contiguous U.S., and the elevation is 14,505 feet.
1: Yeah, now it's on the eastern side of the Sierra Nevada Mountains. The trail itself, the Mount Whitney Trail, it starts in the Inyo National Forest at Whitney Portal, and that's at 8,300 feet.
0: Right, and then it gains, the trail gains over 6,200 feet of elevation before it reaches the summit, which is located in Sequoia National Park. And this trail is 22 miles round trip, and it's usually only snow free from about July to late September. So, again, they had a pretty short window before the blizzards came in to work on this trail.
1: Yeah, it's pretty interesting that of all the things that they had to do, that they spent that much time and energy building a trail, uh, like you said, pretty quickly in in just those snow-free months to the top of the mountain. And the only reason you would do that is you're expecting people to want to go to the top.
0: I know, which is pretty amazing just to remember that this is 1903. How many people do you suppose are interested in hiking to the top of Mount Whitney?
1: I guess there were some, yeah.
0: Now, in November in 1903, the Ninth Cavalry Troops of the Buffalo Soldiers were in Visalia marching through town in a celebration parade that was put on for them by the local citizens. They were honored for their work building um, the Park Road and this trail up to Mount Whitney.
1: Yeah, and I think even back then, the locals, they understood how remarkable it was that this group of men, the things they were able to accomplish just in their very first season up there.
0: Now, let's fast forward 120 years later after this was built. If you want to hike this Mount Whitney Trail now, you will need a permit to day hike it or do a multi-day backpacking trip. And this permit is via a lottery.
1: So if you're interested in applying for the lottery, it It closes on March 1st, so depending on when you're listening to this episode, you might still have some time to enter on recreation.gov.
0: Right. Now, the quota of hikers from May 1st to November 1st is they allow 100 people per entry day for the Mount Whitney zone, that's day use, and 60 people per day for overnight permits. And you know, Matt, after reading about this, about how Captain Young and his team built this, I kind of want to hike Mount Whitney now.
1: Do you (laughs) You put that on the list? It seems like every time we do an episode, which is like every week, um, we add one or two things to the the list.
0: I mean, it's a really tough hike. You know, they recommend that you start at about 3 a.m. which is <laughs> We don't usually, start anything I know, at that's, 3 a.m. That's usually a disqualifier for us. But here's the thing. You can hike three miles out on the trail without a permit. So then we'd have a chance to see the trail and, and the work that the crew did and not have to start at 3 a.m.,
1: yeah, I like that plan. I like taking the 3 a.m. start out. And and didn't we also hear that you can buy pancakes at the trailhead? Pancakes the size of your head I hear. <laughs>
0: The things that you remember, Matt, not the trail itself, but the pancakes, the size of your head. And yes, we did hear that the Whitney Portal store actually sells pancakes. They they don't just sell them. I mean, they cook them. They cook them and sell them. And I saw a photo of one that not only was it huge, like bigger than the plate itself, but it also had a couple of fried eggs and some bacon on top of the pancake.
1: Okay, that's what I want to do. And, and if they start serving that at 3 a. I'm in for the 3 a.m. Oh, really? Yes. I'm happy to make that sacrifice, get there at 3 a.m., have the pancake, the bacon, the eggs.
0: All right. Well, you're the one getting up at 3 a.m., not me. (laughs) Okay. All right, so we mentioned that the town of Visalia was so appreciative of the work that they did that they threw a parade for the Buffalo Soldiers, and they also requested that a sequoia tree be named in honor of Captain Young. But at the time, he protested, and he asked them to defer the honor and revisit the idea in 20 years. Then in 20 years, if they hadn't changed their mind, he would be happy for them to dedicate a tree in his name.
1: But instead, I think this is interesting, Mm -hmm. he... Instead, he asked them to name a sequoia after Booker T. Washington, a leader in the African-American community.
0: Right. And so they did. Now, unfortunately, 20 years later, they did not go back and name a tree after Captain Young. But 100 years later, in June 2003, when there was a rededication ceremony for the Booker T. Washington tree, the deputy director of the NPS called on the park to make good on this promise.
1: And the Colonel Young tree was dedicated in a private ceremony in the summer of 2004. And now it stands with the Booker T. Washington tree over by the Morro Rock Crescent Meadow Road area.
0: That's right. So you can go and see these both of these trees there when you visit the park, which you're absolutely going to want to see the Morro Rock area anyway. So check out these two trees. Now, while the name Charles Young isn't well known, his achievements in the parks, the roads and the trails that he and his soldiers created, are still in use today, serving millions of park visitors.
1: And when Charles Young left Sequoia, he went on to have a distinguished military career, which was unfortunately cut short when he was on a visit to Nigeria in late 1921. He became gravely ill and died at a British hospital in Lagos in 1922.
0: That's right, in the in the year after his death, his wife and many other notable African Americans lobbied the US to repatriate Young's remains from Nigeria so he could receive a proper burial in American soil. One year later, Young's body was exhumed and transported back to the United States. And after arriving in New York City in late May of 1923, Young's body received a hero's welcome. Thousands upon thousands celebrated his life as he made his way to the Washington, D.C. area. Colonel Charles Young became the fourth soldier honored with a funeral service at Arlington Memorial Amphitheater before burial in Arlington National Cemetery.
1: And in uh, 2021, he was honorably and posthumously promoted to brigadier general.
0: Right, and there is an NPS site in Ohio honoring him. It's the Charles Young Buffalo Soldier National Monument. This was established in 2013 to preserve 60 acres of what was once his home. So you can go and visit this national monument in Ohio to find out more about this remarkable man and the work that he did in, um, in both uh, Sequoia and General Grant National Park.
1: Yeah, so it's great that uh, he's getting some recognition for all the work he did and all the men that he led. Uh, incredible amount of work done in a short period of time. And I like what Shelton Johnson said. This is not just an African-American history story. This is an American history story. And these gentlemen did incredible work to not only protect these great public lands, but also to create access for the public to be able to get to those places and enjoy them.
0: Well, exactly. And this is a much broader story than what we have talked about here today. Buffalo Soldiers played in important roles in many other national park sites and public lands so it's not just about Yosemite and Sequoia their reach was far greater and the story is much bigger than we have time to discuss today but there are a lot of uh, resources online that you can read more about their role in in our American history.
1: All right. That wraps up this episode. Thanks so much for joining us. And a special shout out to our listeners to the north of us, all of our Canadian
0: friends. Yes. And thank you for not trying to say anything Canadian, Matt. (laughs) (laughs) We hope to head north this summer and visit some of Canada's really spectacular national parks.
1: If you're new to our podcast, check out our Instagram account where we post a lot of photos and videos related to the topics that we discuss here. You can find our account at Matt and Karen Smith.
0: That's right, and we will be back next week with a very exciting new mailbag episode.